HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Bites on Heritage Radio Network. Listen to in more than 165 countries by more than a million listeners a month. I'm Mitchell Davis, and though you may know me better as Kitchen Sense on Instagram and Twitter, uh, or maybe actually you know me as the guy who loves that cherry salad, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I want to welcome you to this episode of Tech Bites, which is brought to you by the generous support of Just Egg. It's my honor here to be guest hosting for Jennifer Liuzzi for today's and next week's episodes. As listeners know, Tech Bites explores the intersection of technology and food. This week, we're going to extend that intersection a little bit to food media. Consumers of food media know that the landscape has changed in recent years, the shakeup of the business model of media in general, shakeup of racial justice at Bon Appetit, so many things going on. But, but some people think a technological disruption um, may have the biggest potential to turn food media on its head. And at the center of, of that, if you believe what you read, and it's hard these days to know what to believe, the electronic newsletter platform that allows readers to pay directly for their content is Substack, and Substack is disrupting our world, or not. Anyway, that's going to be the subject, among many other things, um, of today's show. With me today is one of my favorite voices, on not just on Substack, but in media in general. Uh, it's such a pleasure to welcome Emily Nunn to Tech Bytes. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Emily, just to give a little bit of background, uh, I mean... It's funny to re- it's funny when people read bios that they're given. So, I mean, I can say that you're an award-winning journalist, that you live in rural North Carolina. We'll talk about all of that. You are the publisher of the unexpectedly 
uh, delicious and popular Department of Salad newsletter on Substack, the official bulletin of the Department of Salad. And um, the author of Comfort Food Diaries, which I had the pleasure of uh, eating up over the last few days, and I, I can't believe it took me so long to read it. So, um, oh, good. It's. I, I mean, it didn't take me long at all to read it. it. Took me so long to get to reading it. I should say I couldn't put it down. Um, so I'm so excited to have you here. I, I feel like I've been stalking you on on social media for some time. Um, <laughs> we connected a few weeks ago when you profiled me in your um, newsletter. Um, and I wanted to bring you on for a couple of reasons. Um, I, I, I'd love to talk about Substack and 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 ha- as you have had a, an esteemed career at, at venerable places like the New Yorker and the Chicago Tribune, um, and now are your own boss on, on this quirky and wonderful newsletter. Yes. Um, and I, I'd love to hear a little bit about you know where you're talking to us from and how you got there, and and then get into this this idea of whether you think Substack is a disruptor for food media or media in general, and and what your experience has been on it. Oh well, you know. Um, I'll start first with how I ended up in North Carolina. I actually came here um, because I had a friend who let me rent her guest cottage to finish writing my book. And then I stayed. Um, And I tell people I stayed because it's so beautiful, which it is. I live in a sort of down from the highlands in Todd, North Carolina, which is kind of rural dairy farm, but it's mountainous and it's it's just dreamy. And there are very few people here. It's not even really a city. And the sign to Todd is in Comic Sans, if that gives you an idea of where I live. Um, <laughs> and um, That is such an urban thing to say in your rural setting. I love it. <laughs> no, we don't use Comic Sans. I've thought about putting graffiti on there. But um, anyway, I don't, um, I stayed here partly because it's so beautiful. And if, I've become a little bit like um, you know, the Stephen King character in The Shining. I mean, I've overstayed my sort of emotional welcome here. Um, love it. And then other times it's like, I've got to get the hell out of here, especially, you know, during um, the elections. It was not so great. Right. <laughs> but I stay right. here because it's beautiful and it's quiet and I just love it. Um, so I'm still here thinking about leaving all the time, trying to decide which city I'm going to move to. But I did finish writing my book here. And um, to segue into how I got to Substack, <laughs> may I use the word segue? Um, I, it's been, you know, three and a half, four years since my book was published. And I thought that I would just step merrily back into freelancing. Um, I had been at the New Yorker, I left the New Yorker to go to the Chicago Tribune, um, had all the disasters in my life that you've read about in my book happen. And then decided to write a book about it right after it happened, <laughs> which is a very bad idea. Don't ever write a book about tragedy right after it's happened, because it just put me into this headspace of thinking about it. And the experience was terrible. And that's part of why I'm still in the mountains. It's just been a bomb. But when I decided, oh, OK, okay, yeah. So I decided once I finished with my book, I started freelancing. I didn't want to write another book because it was just just too painful. (laughs) And I'm very fragile, even though I seem like a barracuda. So I started putting out feelers for freelancing and I got plenty of work. um, And I was doing copy editing. I was doing pretty much anything I could think of to do. And then the pandemic really kind of kicked me into a different gear because I noticed that the things that I was pitching to food media were, you know, lead balloons. Mm. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, 
I, I did a piece, um, a couple of pieces for one site and they just didn't publish them. And I was like, wait a minute, I'm really good. Why would you, why would you not love my pieces? So during the pandemic, I'm going to get to the part about the, uh, the newsletter. During the pandemic, I started, okay. <laughs> I'm very, very isolated out here, but they're beautiful gardens. There's a guy down the road from who grows these gorgeous, giant, fat blackberries. And there's a man who comes to the office supply store in Boone with fresh peaches from South Carolina. And then I have a green market where, you know, there's a non-masker who sells beautiful lettuce. And even though he wasn't wearing a mask, I bought it anyway. And I started building these gorgeous salads. They just became this thing for me. I would be excited about lunchtime and I would make them and I would put them on Twitter before I ate them and people went nuts. And the act, I think it was the actress, Jay um, Cameron Smith, who said, you should do a salad newsletter. And I joked, I said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll do that. I'll get right on that. Thanks for your ideas. And, um, but they just kept making me happier and happier. And I've said this before, it was like giving Mm. myself flowers. They were so pretty. Um, And then I just decided to do it. Um, I started it in October and a lot of people thought I was joking. Um, and that's how it happened. It just, it made me happy. I didn't know what to do for food media. So I decided, I don't know what they're doing anymore. I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to write about food. Um, and I didn't really pick salad because I love salad. I picked salad because it was, it happened to be the thing that was making me happy at that time. And obviously it's not really a newsletter about salad. Um, but it's a way for me to do the kind of writing that I like to do. So that was the, that was the, not the clip notes version. (laughs) Well, luckily this is a podcast where we can take the full unedited version and there's so much in what you just said. I don't even know where to start to follow up, but uh, so, but let's, let's talk about, so you started a a newsletter on Substack and I guess First off, what what's different about that? You know, famously, there are blogs, there's Instagram, there's all these ways that one can communicate with people. What what have you found, if anything, about about Substack that made it an appealing way to go? Um, well, I had had a blog and ages ago, back when I was in Chicago, I got laid off at the Tribune and I started a blog and it won awards and and then I was just like, I'm bored. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Um, there's something about Substack, you know, I had to, I had to start doing it with no audience and then I had to publicize it and lure people in by giving away free hand carved wooden spoons from mountain men here and, um, Todd, um, I, some of my friends on Twitter called it my bait. It worked. Um, (laughs) So I had to start writing this thing in a vacuum, and that was kind of thrilling for me. I don't know why, but the idea that it was all on me, writing it, publicizing it, and then, of course, doing the photos and deciding the format. So I started doing it. I had no audience, and then I had to get an audience. And I I think I'm lucky in this arena because I have a good number of followers on Twitter. I don't have that many on Instagram or I didn't. I'm getting a lot more lately. Um, And then I just decided I'm going to start publishing. My first guest was Molly Katzen, who I've adored my entire cooking life. 
and it was large and unwieldy and it had lots of different sections. And I did that for a while, just giving it away free. Um, and that's the decision you make. There are writers who are so famous and well-known that they could, you know, jump right in with paid newsletters, but I wasn't able to do that. Um, and I was happy. I gave it away for a long time from October until I think I went paid in February. Um, and that's a weird thing to decide to go paid, which, I mean, you can probably imagine. Yeah, I, I've wondered about that because unlike being paid to do something that either, you know, finds an audience or not, there, there's, this is direct marketing. You, you, someone subscribes, they like it, they continue, they don't, they, I guess, imagine unsubscribe, stop paying. Like exactly. there's such an immediate. So hurtful. <laughs> right, right. But but I think that's also where the power of this whole, that's why this is different, I think, from doing a newsletter for Condé Nast, let's say, or what have you. Or for a newspaper, you know, where you've got, you know, a test kitchen, you've got editors, you've got other writers helping you, you've got access to ingredients, you've got a giant kitchen. My kitchen is the size of the back of a minivan, and I'm 30 minutes from grocery store, so I really have to plan. You know, I mean, I really am a one-woman show, um, but um, what's interesting about the marketing aspect of it is that is I am so not a marketer. The most Girl Scout cookies I sold <laughs> as a kid was 11 boxes. That was my max. I mean, that was my celebratory number. So the idea of, of me marketing myself, that was absurd. And then the idea of me asking people to pay me for my work as a woman, that's, right. you know, um, difficult. Because you, I'd already felt rejected by food media to a certain extent, um, especially American food media. For some reason, the Brits love me and I love them right back. Um, but so... I was up. It was a gamble. I mean, it was kind of like get in the car. I mean, get in the van. Oh, okay. I'm not going anywhere. I'm getting in the van. And so I just jumped in and it made me really happy. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of people don't know why they like it. Um, they, they, I get notes from people telling me I don't eat salad, but I love this newsletter. <laughs> and now I'm eating salad three times a week which of course thrills me. And people send me pictures of their salads, some of which are quite ratty looking and have absolutely nothing to do <laughs> with my newsletter. And but you immediately block I, them, I suppose. Right? No, <laughs> I don't. I don't because I, I love, I love, I mean, the people who read my newsletter are wonderful and I don't block them because they're inspired. Right. They're inspired to understand that salad isn't just a bunch of leaves um, you know, we've been one of the things that I the note that I keep hitting repeatedly is a salad can be anything you want it to be. Um, so, no, I don't block them. I love them. But, you know, I, I kind of hinted in one of the newsletters. I love getting your photos. But if you're not going to follow my recipe, if you're going to make it out of fudge and peanuts, don't put my name on it. Don't tag me <laughs> on Instagram on your ugly, disgusting looking salad. And let's learn together and I can help you get better at this, but please don't tag me in your fudge, you know? Okay. Yes. <laughs> don't tag me in your fudge sounds like something, one of those phrases the kids use that I don't understand, but okay. <laughs> exactly. Um, I, um, there are so many things I want to talk to you about, which is why I wanted to meet you in the first place. But let's go back to this idea that you you're you 
your voice wasn't really resonating in American food media because I actually think there's something really profound in that. And um, and the Brits liked you or whatever, and you found your individuals sort of through this medium. But but I, I have felt myself forever that food in America doesn't have a sense of humor. And when we were just about to start recording, you, you, I, we cut, you cut out, but you were going to say that you thought it was funny that I, I described you as a humorist. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things, my husband knows I'm reading your tweets because I laugh out loud, literally, um, <laughs> not just in the LOLs. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, what, what you think, how, how, I'm wondering how that could be. That makes me sad to think there isn't a space and makes me think that perhaps this is the way these sort of um, self-directed um, media platforms are a, a disruption for a voice that has no place in commercial American food media. Like, why don't why do you think you you don't resonate? You ha- you have a great following now for your quirky salad media, but not um, you don't you your voices weren't published, your pieces weren't published when you submitted them as freelance. I mean, some of them were published, um, right. but. You know, and also it, it, it harshed my mellow and my hustle to not have people connect with the things that I wanted to write about. And I w- it was too late in the game. I mean, I just turned 60. It was too late in the game for me to um, brand, I'm putting quote marks around that, brand myself as, you know, a hot young new voice. I mean, my, I had been almost eight years away from a career um, in food. What did you do? You, what did you find something lacking? Oh yeah, in food. Yes, yes, yes. In food I, media, very much so. And one of the things that um, I wanted to do was I wanted people. I wanted stories about people in the newsletter. I wanted to talk. I mean, the 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 first part of the newsletter that I settled was that I was going to have a section called Chef Salad, <laughs> and it would be about home cooks, not necessarily chefs. Um, and so, you know, the newsletter has had, you know, uh, a friend from Twitter who does church suppers with his wife, um, you know, not a, not a food star, just a guy that I really loved. My friend Kevin, who is not a food writer, who was an editor with me at The New Yorker and who was later an editor at Town & Country and has several terrific books, came on and talked about his Caesar salad. And it was one of the most popular newsletters hmm. that I've written because he wasn't really talking about a Caesar salad. He was talking about a bowl that a girlfriend who broke his heart broke, the broken bowl and his broken heart. And I mean, it's it's more to me about the, the stories of people. Mm-hmm. And the same way everybody has a story, everybody has a salad. So people that I like and that I'm interested in, I <laughs> give them a, send them a note and say, you know, give me a salad. And right. that's just that that was the original idea. And then I also had, you know, I was doing books and I was doing gadgets and I still plan to do that. But right now I'm just so overwhelmed trying mm. to do this two times a week that it's shaking down to be the chef salad section without me calling it that. Right. Um, but as, as, as far as, as, as far as humor goes, I think rather than a humorist, I'm, I'm more of a person who just sees a lot of really absurd things in the world. And I say, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I have, there's a very short path. Yeah, from, sure. Yeah. Okay. So you get that. Um, there's, there's a short path from my brain to my mouth and to my fingers on Twitter. And I obviously, you know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea, which is the, the same 
the same is true of my book. Um, but I'm fine with that. I, I don't want to be everyone's cup of tea, but I am enjoying being extremely popular right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm enjoying your popularity uh, too. Um, I, let's take a brief break and we'll come back with Emily Nunn, the um, Chief Salad Officer at the Department of Salad Official Bulletin on Substack. You're listening to Tech Bytes on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy to use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. Okay, we're back. I'm Mitchell Davis. I'm guest hosting for Jennifer Liuzzi. Um, you're listening to Tech Bites on Heritage Radio Network. We're talking to Emily Nunn, an award-winning author of Comfort Food Diaries and um, an overall general uh, great and funny commentator, whether or not she's a humorist is up for debate, um, <laughs> whose wry perspective on the, the absurdities of the world you can enjoy on Instagram at Emily Reese Nunn and on Twitter at Emily R. Nunn. And UNN. Um, I want to talk about, um, you know, this idea of people. Uh, you, you were talking before the break that we like to, that you like to bring people. You're really telling, you're not telling stories about salad, which is obvious, although um, a lot of people have enjoyed a, a lot more salad, I think, because of your stories about people. And one of the things that has um, been a topic of conversation among some of my uh, more activist food folks is how for for many years people weren't allowed really to emerge in food media that that the people were the messy part of the story whether we're talking about you know the people who pick the produce or or the people who um, you know wash the dishes or all that sort of stuff and there's been there's been a, a reckoning of sorts um, it's cur currently happening in the food industry where people are trying to give voice to all those besides the celebrity names on things and and uh, right. another piece of that has also been the sort of um, the silencing of voices, um, sometimes because of, you know, minority status or a belief that everybody just wants a fancy white dinner party in Aspen and on the pages of food media. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, and 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 or, you know, pretty young things and, um, you know, mostly men cooking, all the, all the sorts of things like we think of food as this neutral thing. So many people have told me they don't want food to be political and yet nothing could be more 
um, rife with exactly. all of these issues. So I, I, I know there are a few of them that are particularly, um, uh, you know, stick in your craw, let's say. Um, and <laughs> I wanted to talk first about, um, you know, gender in this space, because what, what you are doing um, by sort of uh, publishing and being paid for uh, and directing your own world here um, is something that I've noticed uh, pastry chefs are doing with their cookie boxes that they're selling directly and no longer working for restaurants, but selling directly to to folks to mail at home. Yeah. Or even historically, when we set up at the James Beard Foundation, um, the Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Program, the research showed that at like 28 years old, most women chefs left the kitchen because they and opened their own Ugh. bakeries or their businesses because there was no space for them in a, right. you know, in a grueling environment, nothing for their family, whatever. And so I'm wondering right. if you could just comment on, um, you know, through the eyes of a woman, and we'll get to the, a woman of a, a, a certain age, um, mm-hmm. you know, whether there's a, a resonance for you in, in, in finding your space here now under your own terms. Um, and, and if you see that as one of the benefits of, of these new technologies, which are probably owned and directed by men anyway, but, but, but give an opportunity to others to engage. Yes. And like, there's a New Yorker cartoon and there's a dog sitting at a computer and another dog is sitting next to him. And he says, on the internet, no one knows you're a dog. And that, (laughs) that is essentially to me, Substack. I mean, I don't have to announce to everybody that, you know, I'm not that far from death. I (laughs) I don't have to say that I'm 60, but um, yes, I mean, my voice is so incredibly immature and I'm so emotionally immature anyway, which is what keeps me young. But um, I, a lot of people always think that I'm a lot younger than I am, um, which is fine with me. I mean, I have no problem with people thinking I'm 30 and I don't have any problem with people knowing that I'm 60. Um, But I definitely credit Substack with giving me back my writer's life, 100%. Um, they've been incredibly supportive. Um, after after I'd gone paid about two months, not even that, maybe six months in, I got a note from one of the writer's rep- representatives, and they offered me the option, and there's been a lot of talk about this, you know, Substack throws money at, you know, big-name writers. But what they did was they offered to subsidize me. Um, not subsidized. I mean, it's more like a writer's advance. I think they call it the Substack Pro program. And I I love the guy who is my writer's representative. His name is Dan Stone. He's just an incredibly smart, you know, great guide for me. And he said, you can keep doing what you're doing. And they take 15%. Um, you can keep doing what you're doing. And I was building my paid reader's slowly, but I was doing well. And he said, or we can do this. We can give you this much for a year and you, we don't take 15%. You take 15% on top of anything that you make past that. And at first, you know, I was like, oh my God, these guys are such suckers. There's no way I'm going to make enough money to, you know, I mean, it felt like Mm -hmm. this has got to be a joke. And I said to, um, Dan, I was like, well, there's no way I'm going to do this much every two months. And he just kind of you know, like had this plain, no comment face. So I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll take it. So I took it because it was nice stability after struggling as a freelancer. So it's allowed me to be a little more um, 
free with how I choose to do things because people do unsubscribe. I mean, I, I cussed a lot, um, I think <laughs> at first and I got a lot of new subscribers from the wall street journal, um, when they did a piece about, uh, about the, about salads and included my newsletter. I mean, I got like 3000 new subscribers and then a substantial number of paid subscribers from that. And that's an older audience. I mean, there's just no way around it. So mm-hmm. I realized, okay, I've got to take into consideration that I've got young people. I've got a very diverse, eclectic audience. Um, and then Steve Sando put me in his Bean newsletter, and that just exploded my subscriptions, and especially paid subscriptions, because Steve said in his newsletter, Emily's making history. Read it if you like it, pay her, because this is, you know, like the new journalism. So that was great. And then um, Diana Henry uh, did a piece about me in the Telegraph. That was amazing. So I'm getting the Bean audience is incredibly diverse. So I've got <laughs> an audience where I finally had to, <laughs> you know, the Bean audience. Yeah. Um, Steve Steve has a million, I think his newsletter has a million subscriptions or something like that. But um, I I had to, I can't remember what where I'm going with this. I think it was the idea that, um, subscribers, you do have to keep them. I mean, uh, a man sent me a note. He <laughs> was like a Marine. And he said, your newsletter is n- not healthy. And I signed up because I thought it was going to be good, healthy green salads. I'm a very fit man. And I do not appreciate this. Please unsubscribe me. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I'm not a diet newsletter. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not, not your nutritionist. <laughs> But I, I tried to be nice, but, you know, it's like, okay. And he wasn't even a paid subscriber. He was a free subscriber. So it's like, okay, well, thanks for all your opinions and not paying me. Right. I love that. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's, there's, you know, that's another part of Substack is, which it's, which is that it's, it's so direct that I get mails directly from people, nice ones, a lot of nice ones, but also people who just like, you know, this isn't what I thought it was. And I'm like, fine, sorry to see you go. Sometimes I'll give people, you know, a free subscription, you know, I'll say, look, maybe you'll like it um, next month. You know, it's like the weather in here. Um, So that is all up to me, um, which is an interesting aspect of it too, because in the newspaper days, I mean, I can remember doing pieces and, um, in, at the Chicago Tribune, somebody accused me of, of, I don't know, something terrible about a piece that I wrote. And they, re- they ran a letter at the Chicago Tribune, this terrible mean letter about me. And I remember thinking, if I were in charge, I would not have run that mean letter about me. So I don't have to run the mean letters. Um, but mm. I do get to assuage people. I mean, if I get a mean letter, I listen to them and I you know, I tell them what my objective is and I consider their suggestions. And it's, there's obviously, I mean, there's, there's no buffer between me and the readers. And I like that. So so I want to talk about ageism because um, even though it is not a subject that, that finds its way into your Substack, I think for fear that people would use it as a reason to unsubscribe. But I also think it's another element that, that we're dancing around here that, that, um, that the gatekeepers, if you will, in quotes, of food media um, have um, historically and certainly very pointedly in, in, in your case at one particular publication um, kept the voices <laughs> young. <laughs> and and I'm, I, what I want to talk about is, is how 
um, the power that comes from being your own boss, if you will, and having your own subscribers and direct payment and and not having to rely on um, the gatekeepers to to open the gates for you. And so to me, there's some really wonderful progressive potential in there. Do you agree? And, yes. And you won't, you, you like, 100%. talk a little bit about that. Um, Absolutely, 100%. Um, and my Substack doing so well and me getting, you know, so many new paid subscribers and you has, has freed me up to be able to say, I'm doing this. I'm successful. I'm still good. Just because I, you know, am over 40, 45. I mean, the Tribune hired me at 40. Um, I don't think people hire new. I'd never even been a newspaper reporter and they hired me at 40. Um, I mean, they laid me off nine years later, but um, it has freed me to be able to say, look, your talent does not disappear. Talent is talent. Just because you have decided as a newspaper that you want a millennial audience doesn't mean that I don't exist and that I am, am not really good at what I do. And that has been incredibly liberating. And as you know, um, on Twitter, I am very vocal about this. Um, am I allowed to say the, the paper that we're talking about? Sure. This is, this is internet radio, of course. Okay. Well, um, years ago, um, after I published The Comfort Food Diaries, I started looking for a job. And I was 57 at the time. I had no idea that, <laughs> I mean, I had no idea that I was, like a leper now. Um, am I allowed to say leper? Um, Is that a bad word? I think that's a good word. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's... Anyway, um, I, I, got oh, a, right. a note, right. I got a note from a friend at the Washington Post, and she said, you should apply for a job here. There's a job in styles. And so I sent all my great clips. You know, I won like the Chicago Tribune's Editor-in-Chief's Award as the best writer at all the Tribune newspapers. I had never been a reporter. I'd been there for two and a half years and I won this award. I mean, I just like, I loved being a, re a features reporter. I didn't hear back from the, from the two guys that she sent me to. So that was, you know, I think 2017. And then in 2018, there was a job at the Washington Post in the style section which is exactly what I did at the Tribune. I wrote about architecture, art. I interviewed celebrities. I wrote about books. And then I was also a food writer. So I sent them, <laughs> I sent them a, um, an application for this Styles job. And I um, waited and I got a note back <laughs> that said, and I've got it on my computer to inspire me. Hi, Emily. Thanks for applying for the open position in Styles. Unfortunately, we are looking for people who have a broader range of experience and a significant number of years at a well-known publication. <laughs> Keep writing, exclamation point. Good luck with your career, Liz. And so I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I mean, I, I sent her a note back and I was like, okay, well, I was at the New Yorker for, you know, over a decade. I was at the Chicago Tribune. I've won awards. I, You know, I'm not really sure which publications, like, was so I put it up on Twitter and it went crazy viral. I mean, people of all ages, not just older people. I mean, kids who were like, wait a minute, how can I have 30 years of experience when I just graduated? It's a, clearly a two-way street. And I also got notes from people, you know, that really hurt me. People saying, oh, well, you know, these young hot girls come in and steal our jobs. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing that in a country accent because I'm country. 
And I remember saying, no, that's that I was a young, hot, smart girl. Just because I was 25 and 30 doesn't mean that I wasn't also really smart and good at my job. It's not their fault. It's the people your age who are not hiring you. The young kids are not taking your jobs. Older people in <laughs> at these publications and at these businesses are the ones who are hiring younger people. It's, it's like stop blaming kids. That's one thing that I repeat all the time. So this went viral. And then I got a note from the, the woman um, saying, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm just trying to do such a good job here. And I wanted to get, you know, the rejections out right away. Nonetheless, we will not be <laughs> pursuing your application. <laughs> so then um, recently, after the pandemic started, I heard that there was a newsletter job at the Washington Post. This is the third time in their food section. And I sent a note to Joe Yonan and I, you know, I said, here's my application. I'm really excited about this. I think it'd be really good. I hope you'll be able to overlook the fact that I <laughs> did that viral tweet. I think I mentioned that. And he was like, we'll be back in touch. And then four months later, I heard that they'd hired somebody that I love. I'm obviously much younger. I, that they hired a really talented person. But Joe never, ever contacted me. And I tweeted about that. I didn't mention his name. And he sent me an email saying, oh, you know, the pandemic. So that, <laughs> that to me was just like, okay. This is crazy. I've got to do. So, I've got to do something because I'm just. It took me a while to realize I am not hitting the right numbers, the age numbers. That you know, and I mean, and Joe's like maybe two years younger than I am. So um, that is <laughs> <laughs> really off. kind of amazing, right? Right. Uh, well, you know, it. It was just like. Okay, I finally get it. You know, the, the Washington Post never wanted me, but part of the reason is because they, you know, I went on their website and they have this thing about their diversity and there's nothing about age at all. And so I wrote, I finally ended up writing the Washington Post and saying, look, I would like to find out how many people you've hired in the last year or so who are over 40. And they didn't answer me and they didn't answer me. And then I sent it again I sent it to the editor-in-chief and their PR person and then the diversity editor. No response. And then I copied it to the, um, you know, the EEOC. Um, and they finally answered. And the woman there said, oh, um, to answer your question, we were just trying to gather our information. We have over 50% of our employees are over 40. And I said, well, that wasn't my question. I mean, people get old after you hire them. That's not really, you don't get a badge for that. Um, and when I said, what I'm asking is how many people over 40 you've hired, then they stopped, they completely stonewalled me. And I have tweeted to their media um, uh, reporter, Margaret Sullivan, I think her name is. And she basically witheringly said, <laughs> I'm not the ombudsman. And it was like, well, I, you don't have one anymore. I mean, there's nobody that I can talk to about this. Nobody will respond. And, you know, their style editor just blocked me recently. I wasn't even following him. It's just I've become like this, you know, pariah, hmm. um, which is fine, you know, because I'm right. I know what's <laughs> going on. I mean, right. they can, when, you, when you're angry about something that is clearly a wrong, it's illegal to practice ageism in hiring, your only option is to either admit it and stop doing it or stonewall or, yeah. and also vilify the person who is pointing out this damaging, destructive, illegal practice. So 
Um, I'm not very popular at the Washington Post. Right. But let's let's take a step out of the human resources office for a second. And and you know one of the yeah. one of the things in food media that has or in food in general that that's just shocked me in in my time in the space a few decades has been when I started out, we used to put on a sort of suit and tie and pretend we were old people so that people would take us seriously. And now all the older people put right. on T-shirts <laughs> and sneakers and shorts and run out and pretend they're kids. Like, and I mean, you know, like- I don't want to see their legs. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and, you know, some of that has been, I think, because of technology or because of this perception that technology is a young person's space. Sure. But but clearly it's not. And sure. clearly people on, you know, there are people on either side and they can use the tools they have um, to reach the audiences right. that they need. So I'm wondering. You it's know, not hard. Right. Right. I um, mean, in fact, wisdom comes with some things that might resonate even more than youth, if you will. Right. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, um, you know, let, let, let's end a little bit with with people who may find themselves in a position, I don't know that it's similar to yours, but but um, wanting to find a way to express, like, what would you advise them to do to stop looking and start their own Substack or to, or to, uh, well, I don't know, what would you, what do you think? Uh, That's a great question. And, you know, when I was tweeting about ageism and people were saying, you know, it's it's just so hurtful and I'm so discouraged and people internalize it. And they think that because, an, a giant institution doesn't hire you, it means you're worthless. And so, so the, I use the word sneaky. You have to be sneaky. You have to assert your most vibrant qualities. You have to, and it sounds a little bit like, what color is my parachute? Remember that book in sure. the 70s? Like, what's that? you know, pick a, your color. But I think, I, I can't really preach on this because I feel like to a certain extent, I was a happy accident. I mean, I, I I do know enough about technology that I'm not afraid, like how to do a Substack. It's so easy. I mean, I was around when we started using the internet. I've kept mm-hmm. up. It's not hard. Um, but I I can't I can't preach other than than to say that when I started thinking about what I wanted to see in the world and started doing that, and it made me happy, and I just kept doing it even though I was really white knuckling it financially for quite a long time, um, you just have to gamble at this point in your life. You you have to really think about maybe the things that you wish you'd done when you were younger and do those. I mean, when it comes to age, but I mean, that's, I think that's true of people of any age right. though. I mean, at this point, the way, you know, jobs are becoming more and more and more, um, what is the word? Um, not human, <laughs> you know. I mean, we even tech jobs are people are being roboted out of their tech jobs. You really have to think, and that's one of the reasons that I love Substack is because they got that. And you know, I mean, I, I don't know what else to say. I mean, mm-hmm. because I, I I feel like mine is is really personal, um, but I do think that. This is going to sound terrible, but I think being isolated during the pandemic really turned me. I mean, if anything good came out of the pandemic for me personally, it was that I was so pushed back on myself in that kind of Joan Didion way, like really like assess how we got here. And I just decided to do something about it. And Well, I, I think the whole world was pushed back and 
Unfortunately, not everyone yeah. is deciding to do something about it. I feel like right. there was some opportunity there that that some people are taking. I, it's funny you had already moved to to rural North Carolina, and everyone you were like a year you were several years before everybody else was looking for real estate in, in the neighborhood. Right, um, and I mean, obviously, that's not you know there are terrible things about. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I am like Jack Nicholson in The Shining sometimes, especially in the winter, but. The, the those parts of it are outweighed by the beauty and the peace and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to end, I guess I want to ask. Um, you know, I, I found a quote in your book that that salad is the world, <laughs> and and I I I mean I feel like food is the world in a lot of ways. So you can pick any one of them, and I just wonder. Mm-hmm if you could reflect on that for a bit, because I, that's, that seems to be what you do so well, I think is, is, um, see the world and, and eat a good meal (laughs) while you're at it, sort of looking on. And I just, you know, thinking about what, what you'd like to see in food media, knowing that you're, you are now a part of it in this, in this emerging platform. I'm just wondering what you think is missing from the buffet. Um, Well, you know, I I forgot that I'd written that. That's from my book. Um, And I think what I said was a salad can be the whole world. And that, I mean, that's, I mean, if I don't, I don't mind saying that's a pretty beautiful idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, because, you know, every culture has salads and we might not recognize them. I mean, you know, a, a Lithuanian salad or, I don't know if Lithuanian is the right there are thousands of international salads that we wouldn't recognize as salads here in North Carolina, but they're still salads. They're still created by people. They're still delicious. They're still an adventure to learn about and make. Um, and I don't, I don't know. I mean, they're again, salad was just this happy accident. Mm-hmm. Um, but but once I started, I I saw, you know, that it was <laughs> going to sound so corny, but it, it it was like a kaleidoscope. It just kept opening and opening and opening for me. And that, of course, as we both know, is because of the people and the stories and the many different kinds of people. You know, you know, I'm not just talking to people from rural North Carolina. In fact, I don't talk to many people from rural North Carolina <laughs> ever. Um, so, yeah, it's just that kind of, you know, idea that, you know, in a raindrop, there are a million different lives. Oh, that sounds, that is, there are no lives in a raindrop. <laughs> you know I mean? a raindrop is water. <laughs> well, water's important. Well, when you do the Department of Water, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up on that theme anyway. Right. Um, thank you. So I'm so glad we got a chance to continue this conversation. I hope that people enjoy listening to it. I certainly did. Me too. Um, I'll remind folks that it's the Department of Salad. And I think your, um, the actual website is eat some salad or the URL is eat some salad.substack.com. That's right. You can subscribe for free, but it's better if you pay and, um, you get, uh, to eat some more delicious things and consume more delicious things. If you do, um, you're listening. This has been tech bites. I'm Mitchell Davis. I'm guest hosting for Jennifer Liuzzi 
Um, I will see, you will hear me next week. I was going to say see you next week, but I haven't seen anything. I've been staring at my computer and lines going up and down the whole time. Um, it's a real pleasure, Emily. Thank you. Continue to, to bring us the kaleidoscope that is salad. Um, for as long as it interests you, it will certainly interest us. Thank you so much for letting me talk to you. Have a good day. Tech Bytes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.